you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please turn them to the book of Romans this morning. Um, this morning, we're not going to be in a specific passage. Uh, we've spent the better part of three years in this letter, finishing up our verse-by-verse exposition of it last Sunday. And this Sunday, I want to kind of just do an overview of everything. I want to back up from the weeds and, and uh, look at this more from a 30,000-foot level. Um, I hope and pray that our study of the book of Romans of the last three years has been um, e- even just a, just a fraction of as much of a blessing and encouragement to you and a challenge to you as it has been to me. Um, I pray that the Lord has used his word in this letter to grow your love for him, your appreciation for the grace that is made available through the gospel, and that the Lord has used his word to, to grow your faith in him as well. Uh, We've taken our time through this study. We've sought to draw out every bit of truth, as much truth as we possibly can from every verse of scripture, sometimes covering as few as one or two verses. But the danger in that is missing the proverbial forest for the trees, and we don't want to do that. So this morning we're going to back up. We're going to get out of the weeds, go to that 30,000 foot level, and uh, seek to understand and look at this and maybe see some larger implications that we might have missed out on. And so we're not going to parse any Greek verbs this morning. We're not going to deal with the original languages um, as much. Um, but this morning, I, I want us to get up out of the weeds and, and, and get to that place where we, where we hopefully will see a landscape of truth and doctrine and encouragement uh, that we might have otherwise missed as we're in the weeds. So first of all, we need to remember what kind of literature this is. Uh, There are various kinds of literature in Scripture. Next week, we're going to start back to our study of the book of Genesis, that we covered the first 11 chapters prior to starting the study of Romans. The book of Genesis is different. It's a historical narrative. It's a story about what happened in history. The book of Romans is not. The book of Romans is a letter. The Greek word is an epistle. That word means letter. See, I've already broken my promise about the Greek language, so sorry about that. Um, but it's a letter. <clears throat> today, we don't write letters like they used to be written. So it's, it's a lost art today. Today, we tweet, we text, um, but we don't, we don't use letters to elaborate and articulate our thoughts and to formulate those thoughts and deliver them t- to another person or people. But in Paul's day, that was the primary way of communicating And perhaps, in many ways, it was the only way of communicating from one part of the world to another, which is what Paul is doing uh, with this letter. When he writes this letter, he's in Greece. He's a a few hundred miles to the east in a city called Corinth. And his purpose in writing this was to encourage and strengthen the church in Rome. And his method for encouraging them and strengthening them And strengthening their faith was to reinforce the central message of Christianity, which is the gospel, which is the primary theme of this letter. It's 16 chapters long, but we remember that these chapter divisions that we see in this and other letters in Scripture and other books in Scripture are not divinely inspired. They weren't a part of the original canon. When Paul wrote this letter, he just wrote a letter. He didn't write chapter 1. Then chapter 2 and then chapter 3, he just wrote a letter. It wasn't until the 13th century that chapter divisions were introduced. And then three centuries later in the 16th century that verse numbers were introduced. 
He just wrote a letter like, like you might write to a friend or a family member. And so we're glad that these chapter divisions and verse numbers are here because they help us to navigate where we are in the Bible. I can say, let's turn to chapter 5, verse 8. We can all turn there and find that verse and read that verse and seek to understand it together. But we should remember that they weren't a part of Paul's original letter. He just wrote a letter to these people that he loved in the city of Rome, these believers that lived there. 16 chapters, 7,111 words in the Greek, about that many in the, in the English language as well. Takes about 45 minutes to read through it straight through. Um, it's hard to believe, taking us three years to really just kind of walk through this, but I would encourage you to do that. If you haven't done it already this week, maybe even do that with your base group tonight or this week. Maybe if, if that's all you do is just read the letter out loud together. It takes about 45 minutes. It takes a lot less just to read it like reading it. But if you read it out loud, it takes about 45 minutes. A little over 7,000 words. The first 11 chapters are primarily the doctrinal portion of the letter. The last five chapters, 12 through 16, are considered to be the practical section. Not that there isn't practical stuff in the doctrinal section and doctrinal stuff in the practical section, but by and large... In the first 11 chapters, it is the, the, the norm is it is primarily filled with uh, doctrine by nature, doctrinal part, telling us things that are true, while the last five chapters are primarily practical in nature, telling us things that we are to do. The primary verb form of the first 11 chapters is, is the indicative verb form, telling us things that are, telling, telling us things that are true. Uh, Things like we have sinned against God, we need to be saved, we are unrighteous, Jesus gave his life for sinners. Things that are true. While in the last five chapters, the primary verb form is the imperative, which is a command, telling us things that we ought to do based on things that are true. Things like love one another, serve the Lord, rejoice in hope, be subject to the governing authorities, and so on and so forth. Now, It's critical for us to read this letter as it was written, and it wasn't written from the end to the beginning. It was written from the beginning to the end. So it's important that we we wrestle with that doctrinal section and then dive into the practical section and not cover it from the back to the front. How many of you like to read the end of a book first? There are a few of you. I see you. You like to know who done it. And so you go to the back and you read who done it, uh, but you miss that plot building. You miss all the character building in the front. I know that's okay. You can do that. But we can't do that with Paul's letters. If we do that with Paul's letters, then what we do is we end up trying to obey the dues without first wrestling with the truth that is the context for those dues. We, we, we begin implementing the imperatives before wrestling with the indicatives. And friend, that is just empty religion. That's what that is. That's empty religion. Religion is simply man doing for God in order to make himself acceptable to God, which is where we'll end up if we're trying to obey the commands of chapters 12 through 16 without first wrestling with, believing, and coming to grips with the truth that is found in the indicatives of chapters 1 through 11. But that's what we're drawn to, isn't it? We want to know what it is that we're supposed to do. We want to know how it is that we're supposed to act, what we're supposed to uh, do, the practical stuff. We're immediately drawn to that. But that stuff, divorced 
from the indicatives, the things that are true in chapters 1 through 11, is just empty religion. But when we put that stuff, those imperatives, those commands, those things that we ought to do, when we put them in the right context, and we understand them at the end of the letter, not at the beginning of the letter, then we see that those imperatives are simply natural implications of the indicatives that we find in chapters 1 through 11. Said another way, the practical commands of the last five chapters of this letter become the means by which we apply the truths that we find in the first 11 chapters of the letter. So we don't start at the end and work backward. We start at the beginning and then we work forward. And since we've, for the last 10 months or so, we've been in that practical section, learning those do's, I want us to focus this summary this morning primarily on the first 11 chapters and immerse ourselves once again in that good news, that gospel that gives rise to the practical section that follows. And and what we see when we do that, when we look at those 11 chapters from that 30,000 foot level, what we see is this thread of the gospel that's woven through the tapestry of this letter all the way through. Specifically, we see eight movements that I want to put before you this morning, eight movements of the gospel in those first 11 chapters. The first is quite simply is the introduction of the gospel. We find in the first 17 verses of chapter 1. It's where Paul introduces himself as the author. He introduces the primary recipients of the letter, which are the believers in Rome. And towards the end of this introduction, Paul says that he longs to visit them, something he'll repeat at the end of the letter. He wants to visit the believers in Rome because he's never visited them, at least not as a believer. He's visited them as a Jew, he's visited them as a Pharisee, but not as a believer in Christ. And he wants to. He desperately wants to. And he, he, he knows of their faith. He says, your faith is famous, so I, I want to come see you. And he knows how strategic that church is being in the capital city of the Roman Empire. And he says his purpose in wanting to visit them is to encourage them and to strengthen them in their faith. And as we said last week, his method for strengthening strengthening their faith and encouraging them in their faith is to preach to them this gospel. And so he concludes this introduction. Uh, Look at verse 15 of chapter 1. Paul says, So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. He wants to strengthen their faith, and his method for doing so is by preaching the gospel. So why is he so eager to preach the gospel to them? Look at the next two verses, verses 16 and 17. It says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, he says, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So that's the introduction to the letter, but it's also our introduction to the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation. It is, it is God's power to save for everyone who believes. Now that begs the question, If the gospel is God's power to save, then what is it that we need to be saved from? And that's what he covers next in the second movement of the gospel in this letter. That is the need for the gospel. And why do we need the gospel? Look at the very next verse, verse 18 of chapter 1. 
For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. What we need to be saved from, gospel is the power of God to save, what we need to be saved from is the wrath of God, which Paul tells us later, the wrath of God gives way to the judgment of God. And the judgment of God is punishment for the two things that he mentions in this verse here, ungodliness, which is our sin, our waywardness, and unrighteousness, which means a lack of that righteousness, that, that good enoughness to make ourselves acceptable to God, that, that we have a lack of that, and so we are unrighteous. We don't have that, and so we deserve God's judgment. We deserve God's wrath to be poured out on us. Now, that's a hard pill to swallow, Right? As all bad news is, we love to hear good news, but we don't often like to hear bad news, especially when it's bad news about us and our condition. And it's bad news to hear that we're all deserving of God's wrath and judgment. But it is absolutely critical that we both hear this bad news and we come to grips with this bad news if what comes next, which is the good news, is going to be truly good. Only... Only when we truly come to grips with that bad news and accept that and understand that and realize that, only then will the good news which comes next be good. But because this bad news is such a hard pill to swallow, he spends the next two chapters, the rest of chapter one, all the way through the midway point of chapter three, diving into what this means. That we're all in the same boat here. We've all sinned. We're all guilty of ungodliness. None of us has the righteousness that Uh, We must have in order to be made good enough to be in the presence of a holy God. Let let me share some of what he says. In chapter 1, he says, even those who haven't heard the gospel are guilty before God. Now, this is one of the arguments that's often used against Christianity. How can someone who has never heard the gospel be found guilty of rejecting the gospel? Well, my answer is that they're not found guilty of rejecting the gospel. They're found guilty for being guilty. They're found guilty of being a sinner. They're found guilty of this ungodliness and unrighteousness which is common to all man. Often the argument goes like this. What about the innocent man that lives in the remote tribe of Papua New Guinea who's never heard the gospel? What about that guy? To which we should recognize that that is a straw man fallacy because there is no such man. There is no innocent man in that remote tribe in Papua New Guinea and there's no innocent man anywhere else for that matter. There are only guilty. There are only ungodly. There are only the unrighteous. There are only sinners. So even those who haven't heard the gospel message are found guilty before God because they are ungodly and they are unrighteous, as we all are. But it's not just the godless heathen. It's also, Paul tells us, the self-righteous and religious people who are guilty before God, as he tells us in the rest of chapter 1 and chapter 2. Those people who think that they are righteous because they do good, And they judge others because they're not as good as they are. Here's what Paul says about them in chapter 2, verse 1. He says, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. So here in chapter 2, Paul now shifts his focus to the other side of the room. And he, he turns his gaze from, from the godless heathen to uh, the self-righteous religious people of his day, which are his Jewish brethren. 
In the remainder of chapter 2, he warns the Jewish uh, brothers, his Jewish brothers. He said, don't, don't think that you're right with God just because you have the law. You break the law. You are a lawbreaker. Yes, you have the commands of God, but you have broken them, and you're found guilty before God. So, you, so you're, don't think that you're right with God just because you have the law. Furthermore, don't think that you're right with God just because you've received the sign of being a part of God's chosen people, which for them was circumcision. Don't think that you're right with God just because you have that. Listen to what he says in chapter 2, verse 25. He says, for circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, and who's in that category? <laughs> Everyone, right? All people. He says, if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. In other words, the outward sign of being a part of God's chosen people means nothing if you're not fully obeying the law and following the law, and you're not. You're still guilty before God and deserving of his wrath. So he was telling them, don't trust in the fact that you've got the law, and don't trust in the fact that you've got circumcision or any other outward expression of religion. When we covered that passage, we talked about how today the sign of being part of God's chosen people is baptism. But just as the Old Testament Jew should not put his trust in circumcision, today the New Testament believers should not put their trust in water baptism or any other outward sign of religious expression. So Paul addressed the godless heathen, he addressed the self-righteous, he addressed the religious people. And just in case he left any, anyone out, he said in chapter 3, verse 10 and following, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Now let me help you with the original language here. I promise not to go into the Greek, but you forgive me. Let me help you with the language here. None in the Greek actually means none. All means all. So none is righteous. None of us has that good enoughness, that, that, that stuff that makes us acceptable to God. None of us has that righteousness. All of us have turned aside from God. That means everyone in this room, everyone who has ever lived, all of us are ungodly. So we have no righteousness of our own. We are ungodly. We have turned aside from God. So before we turn to the good news of the gospel, we need to come to grips with the reality of this truth, this bad news that we find here, the condition that we're all in. We have no righteousness of our own. All we have is sin. All we have is ungodliness, unrighteousness in us. And because of that, even our attempts to righteousness are ungodly because they are not of faith. And because of that, we are all under the wrath of a holy God deserving his just punishment for our rebellion against him. So that's the bad news, and now we're so ready for the good news. And that's what he gives us next in the next movement of the gospel, the good news of the gospel. Let me just read to you chapter 3, verse 21 through 25. He says, but now, the, the but now comes right after all that bad news has come to a crescendo, come to a climax. None of us is righteous, no, not, no, not one. All of us have turned aside, but now. But now what? The righteousness of God has been manifested. It's, it's been revealed, uncovered. It's been made available. And it's apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, it they, they point to it, but you're not going to get it through that. 
You're not going to get it through following the law. Verse 22, what is this righteousness of God? It is the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all of sin to fall short of the glory of God. That's the bad news. Here's the good news of verse 24. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So we've got no righteousness of our own. We don't have that good enoughness stuff to make ourselves acceptable to God. And we can't earn that stuff by following the law. We can't achieve that righteousness. Even in our attempts to follow the law, it is not by faith, and so it is not earning anything for us. And so we are hopelessly lost and deserving of judgment. And then Paul says, but now, but now the righteousness of God has been made manifest. An alien righteousness has been revealed. A righteousness that's not our own. What righteousness is it? It is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Through the perfect life that he lived, perfectly obeying the law and achieving that righteousness that we never could. Now that righteousness, the righteousness of Jesus, is made available to us by faith so that those who put their faith in Jesus Christ as their redeemer and rescuer, his righteousness gets credited to their account by faith. So that now when God looks at them, this holy God under whose wrath we all are, when this holy God looks at those in Christ, He sees the righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ, covering them as if a garment. And he declares us to be righteous. That word word justified means declared righteous. He declares us justified. He declares us righteous, acceptable to God, good enough to be in his presence, not based on our goodness, but based on the perfect goodness of Jesus Christ, covering us as a garment. And when Paul mentions there in verse 25 that Jesus was our propitiation, that word means the the satisfaction of wrath, the one who satisfies wrath. And what a beautiful yet horrifying picture that is, that we deserve God's wrath, but when Jesus died on the cross in our place, and his righteousness, by faith in him, his righteousness covers us like a garment His death satisfies the wrath that God has against us for our sin. What a beautiful yet horrifying picture that is. This righteousness becomes our covering. This justification becomes our position. And this this satisfaction of God's wrath against us through Jesus' death on the cross becomes our experience only by faith in Christ alone. And from that, we have the, 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 the grand hallmark of the, the, the hallmark doctrine of the Protestant Reformation. Justification by faith alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, as revealed in the scriptures alone, to the glory of God alone. It's only by faith in Jesus Christ. And that is the most important consideration that every single person in here will ever consider. That's the most important question that I have for you this morning. Have you placed your faith in Christ alone for rescue from what you and I and everyone in here deserves? Have you? Have you placed your faith in Christ? That's the most important thing for you to consider this morning. Because consider what's at stake. Paul says the wrath of God is on all sinners, all ungodly, all unrighteous. And he tells us that's all of us. We're all in the same boat there. And none of us has the righteousness, the good enoughness that is necessary to make ourselves acceptable to God.
And the only way that wrath of God is lifted from us is if Jesus satisfies it for us. If Jesus doesn't satisfy it, then God will get satisfaction through us, through judgment, through punishment. And and Jesus only satisfies the wrath of God for those sinners who put their faith in him. So if you haven't put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Redeemer, as your Rescuer, your Lord, your Savior, as your only hope to be rescued from what you deserve, then the bad news this morning is that the wrath of God remains on you. But the good news is that by faith in Jesus Christ, the wrath of God is lifted from you and placed on Jesus on the cross. And his perfect righteousness is wrapped around you as if a garment. So if you're here this morning in this room and you, you now realize, maybe for the first time, that you are still under the wrath of God because you've never placed your faith in Christ. You have no righteousness of, our own, of your own. The only question remaining for you is, will you keep trying to earn God's acceptance by trying to be good enough? Let me just say to you, on the basis of God's word, on the basis of the Apostle Paul, that is a dead-end street. You will never achieve that righteousness. You'll never be lifted out from underneath the wrath of God. The only way is by placing your hope, your faith, your trust in Christ alone. His finished work on the cross, his death, his burial, his resurrection, as your only but yet confident and assured hope that what he did on the cross, he did for you. It is only by faith in Christ alone. And so I I would implore you to be reconciled to God through faith in Jesus Christ. You can do that this morning as we close in prayer in a bit. But in the remainder of our time, I want us to see that the good news of the gospel is not just for lost people who need to be rescued from their sins, but it is also for found people who are trying to live a life of faith for Jesus each and every day. Remember this letter, the book of Romans, was written by the Apostle Paul, not primarily to the lost people in Rome. It was written to the church. It was written to the believers in Rome. And so the gospel has implication for both the lost and the found. For the former, the lost, it is the power of God for salvation. The, the, God's using the gospel to save us from sin's penalty. But for the latter, for those who are already saved by grace through faith, The gospel is the power of God for salvation that is saving us from sin's power and saving us ultimately from sin's presence to everyone who believes and keeps on believing. So Paul doesn't stop with just this gospel tract in the first three chapters. He continues. He goes on to give us more. In chapter four, we see an example of the gospel through Father Abraham. Next week, we're going to begin, uh, we're going to enter back into our study of the book of, Rome, uh, book of Genesis in chapter 12, where we're going to be dealing with that first patriarch, Abraham, Father Abraham and his life. But Paul's point here in chapter four, all of chapter four, is that Abraham too, is only justified by faith. He wasn't justified. He wasn't declared righteous because he was a good person. He wasn't declared righteous because he obeyed God. He was declared righteous because he trusted. He, was, he too was justified by faith. But then after this, Paul spends the next two and a half t- chapters teaching the Roman believers about the glorious implications of the gospel. 
In other words, since we are justified by faith in Christ alone, then all these things are true about us. And, and what a magnificent list we see in the remainder of chapter 5 all the way through the midway point of chapter 8. And I just I want to give them to you. I'm not going to deal with each one of these in any great detail. But I, wanna, I want you to see this list of 10 things. Uh, there are many more, but these are the 10 major things that we see in, in those chapters that are true about those who have been justified by faith in Christ alone. And consider how these truths, if we, if we come to grips with them, we remember them, we preach them to ourselves and to one another, how these things will strengthen our faith in Christ. Number one, we have peace with God now. He says in the very first verse of chapter one, therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We who are under the wrath of God, and therefore we were his enemies, now we have peace with this holy God. Secondly, now we can rejoice in sufferings. In the next three uh, verses, chapter uh, chapter 5, verses 3 through 5, he talks about sufferings and how now sufferings have a purpose in our lives. Now God uses them to purify our faith and to grow our uh, our trust in Christ. He continues this in chapter 8, verse 28, very familiar passage, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Even times of suffering and trial, he's working those things. He's sovereign of those things. He is orchestrating those things for a reason, even if we don't understand what the reason is. He also talks about in chapter 8 how, how suffering is Uh, only temporary. He says in chapter 8, verse 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. And so through, through Paul, we understand that suffering now has meaning in our life, and we understand that it is temporary. It is only for a time, and it gives way to glory. Number three, we can now have confidence in God's love for us. We sang about this in one of the songs we sang earlier this morning. Chapter 5, verse 8, he tells us, but God shows, he demonstrates his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, while we were his enemies and under his wrath, Christ died for us. The gospel is a constant and beautiful reminder of how much God loves us. He loves you and he loves me, and we see it when we look at the cross. Number four, we know now that we are reconciled to God through his death, burial, and resurrection. Jesus has purchased us back to him, we who are in Christ, who have been justified by faith. We've been purchased back to him. We were made for a relationship with God so that we might glorify him with our life. But we can't do that in our sin. We can't do that when we're captive to sin. We can't do that when we're dead in our spirit. And so now we've been, we've been reconciled to God in order to do just that. Not only have we been reconciled to God, but we've also been made alive to God. That's the last half of chapter 5. What was once dead is now alive. That part of us that communed with God, that was made to have a relationship with God and commune with God and, and glorify Him, our spirit, was dead. And what was dead has now been made alive. And So now we can have that relationship with Him that He desperately wants with us and that we desperately need with Him. Sixth, now also we, are, we, uh, we were dead to sin. Not only are we alive to God, but we are dead to sin. He covers this in the first half of chapter 6. Paul says how sin no longer rules us. We've got a new master. 
Now our master is Jesus. And because Jesus now is our master, we're no longer slaves to sin. Now we are, seventh, we're slaves to righteousness. We're slaves to righteousness now. He says in chapter 6, verse 18, having been set free from sin, we now have become slaves of righteousness. And so in a sense, we've traded one kind of slavery for another. While previously we were captors, captive to sin, now we have been set free from sin and we are captive to obedience to Jesus. We're now slaves to righteousness. Previously we were incapable of righteousness. Now in Christ we can be righteous. Before we could only sin. Now, now in Christ we can be righteous. And so now we want to be slaves to righteousness and we can fight against sin. But the reality is we still struggle with sin, don't we? We still give in to sin. We do the things that we don't want to do, and we don't do the things that we know that we should. And it's frustrating, isn't it? And I'm encouraged, as I hope you are, when we see at the end of chapter 7, Paul kind of operating out of this same frustration. Why do I keep doing the things I know I shouldn't do? And why do I stop doing the things I know I should keep on doing? He says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And he says in the next breath, the last verse of chapter 7, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. So the eighth thing that is true about us because we've been justified by faith through Christ alone is that indwelling sin keeps us dependent on sustaining grace. This sin, this ongoing battle that we have with sin, it reminds us every day, it should remind us that we need God's grace, not just to save us from sin's penalty, but we need God's sustaining grace to engage in this battle against sin, to help us as we do battle against us. And in that battle, we're reminded, number nine, that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. The very next couple of verses in chapter eight says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He's just said, man, I keep doing the things I don't want to do. I stopped doing the things I know I should do. Who's going to deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to Jesus who delivers me from this body of death. But there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So when the enemy condemns you and tells you that you're beyond hope, that you're beyond saving, that there's no way that you could belong to God because you still sin, we can claim this truth. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ, who have been justified by faith in Christ alone. And then finally, because we've been justified by faith in Jesus Christ, we have divine help in our battle against sin. We have divine help in fighting against sin in our daily life. In chapter 8, verse 13, he says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. We do that by the Spirit. With the Spirit who's living and operating inside of us now, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, we're now the temple of the Holy Spirit, and the Spirit living and operating inside of us, and he helps us to fight against sin and now have victory over it and win in that battle. Now, look at that list of 10 things, 10 things that are true of those who have been justified by grace alone through faith in Christ alone, that we have peace with God. We, we, we now can rejoice in sufferings because we know that sufferings have meaning and that they're only for a time and that they're going to give way to glory. We can have confidence that this God loves us deeply, desperately, passionately, 
that we're reconciled to this guy. We're no longer enemies. We've been, we've been reconciled to him. We've been made alive. We're no longer dead in our spirit. We're made alive. Now we're dead to sin. We've been freed from sins. Now we're slaves to righteousness. And the sin that's in us keeps us depending on sustaining grace as we live a life of faith. But knowing that there's indwelling sin, we also know that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And he's given us the spirit and put the spirit inside us to help us fight against sin and win. I don't know about you, but if I can keep preaching these gospel implications to myself, and if I can stay engaged in a gospel-centered church that is going to keep preaching these gospel implication truths to me, even when I'm in the depths of despair, then church, my faith is going to be strengthened. And that's why Paul spends this time fleshing out the implications of the gospel in such great detail to the church in Rome because he wants their faith to be strengthened. And and the more they come to grips with the implications and the truth of the gospel, then their faith will, in fact, be strengthened, and so will ours. And so the gospel is the power of God, first, for saving us from sin's penalty. That's chapters 1 through 4, dealing with our justification. But it's also the power of God to save us from sin's power in daily living. That's our sanctification as we grow in faith in Christ, which he deals with in chapter 5 through the middle point of chapter 8. But the gospel is also the power of God to save us from the very presence of sin, which is glorification and is what he focuses on in the last half of chapter 8. It's our, our sixth movement of the gospel in this letter And that is the future hope of the gospel. Listen to verses 29 and 30 of chapter 8. He says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Uh, Bible scholars call this the golden chain of salvation, and it's an unbroken chain. None is lost from one link in the chain to the next. All those whom he foreknew. And when we looked at that, we said that God's foreknowledge is him foreloving us. And those whom he foreknew, he also predestined or chose. And all those whom he predestined, he also called. This is the call to salvation, the call to faith in Christ. And all, all those whom he called, not some, not a portion, not most, but all those whom he called, he also justified, which means declared righteous. And all those whom he justified, he also glorified. None is lost from one link in the chain to the next. And I love how that last word glorified is in the past tense, even though it speaks of something that is yet to happen. It speaks of something that is in the future when Jesus brings us home and we are glorified in his presence. How can something that's going to happen in the future be spoken of as in the past tense? Only if it is such a sure thing that it can be spoken of as if it has already happened. That's the truth. In other words, all those whom he justified, he also glorified. It is such a sure thing that Paul can speak of it as if it has already been, as if it's already happened. 
In chapters 9 through 11, Paul provides the seventh movement, a defense of the gospel. Don't have time to get into this, but this is where he provides a defense of the gospel. He provides a defense of God's sovereignty and his unconditional election of those whom he would save, because otherwise nobody would choose him if he didn't choose them. In those three chapters, chapters 9 through 11, Paul gives a justification of God. That God is just in how he chooses to save mankind. He didn't have to, but he made a divine plan, and he chooses to save mankind. And he is just in how he chooses and how he determines to save mankind. And he also provides a justification for how God is just and how he chooses to deal with Israel. But I want us to close with what Paul closes with at the end of this treatise on the gospel, at the end of chapter 11 which is our eighth movement of the gospel, and that is that we see in the gospel the glory of God. Last four verses of this, this doctrinal section of the letter, verses 33 through 36, reveal to us the glory of God in the gospel. After spending 11 chapters expounding the truth of the gospel, the implications of the gospel, Paul erupts naturally, authentically, and passionately in worship Listen to verses 33 through 36. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Paul erupts after, after dealing in such great detail with the gospel and its implications. He erupts in worship. We talked about this last week. He does the same at the very end of the letter. Doxology. Doxa means glory. And he's finding glory in God as a result of the gospel. What we've seen in chapters 1 through 11 is theology. And all theology should always result in doxology. I hope and pray that as a result of our study in Romans of the last three things, that primarily two things would be true of all of us. First is that the gospel would be bigger to us. That the gospel is bigger than what it once was to us. It's not just a way for sinners to get fire insurance. It's more than that. It's a story about God. It's a story about his redemptive plan, a plan that he had in place, as he tells us in Ephesians, before the foundation of the world. It's a story about sin. It's a story about the fall of man. But not just mankind in general. It's a story about our sin, a story about our fall, and how tragic it is, and why we sinned, and what catastrophic effects the sin of man has had, on, on creation, but also on mankind forever. It's a story about Jesus. First, his perfect life, whereby he earned righteousness. Secondly, about his substitutionary death. And then thirdly, where we're shown that God had accepted that death as a satisfaction against the wrath of us through his resurrection. It's a story about what that means for our past, our present, and our future in Christ. 
It's a story that can and should be lived out in the life of every follower of Jesus Christ each and every day. And it's a story that we must preach to ourselves and to one another to strengthen us in our faith, no matter what life circumstances might be. And it's a story that if we truly believe it, we can't help but sharing it with others who desperately need it. Why? Because we are not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. But it's my prayer that not only the gospel would be bigger to us now, but that the glory of God would be brighter to us. That after spending three years wrestling with the truth of the gospel, that the glory of God would be more manifest to us, so that we would apprehend it more clearly, more acutely than we ever have. John Piper says, the glory of God is the manifest beauty of God's holiness. It is the going public of his holiness. It is the way he puts his perfect holiness on display for his people to apprehend. And the beauty of God's holiness is never more perfectly displayed to where we can apprehend it than in the gospel. So after spending these three years peering into the Apostle Paul's discourse on the doctrine of the gospel and and the implications of the gospel, I hope and pray that we will apprehend the glory of God more acutely, more clearly, and that the glory of God for you and I would be brighter than it was before. And so that our life would be a display of his glory in this world until he brings us home. Let's pray. As you're in a spirit of prayer, I would be remiss if I did not call upon those who sense that they are still under the wrath of God to just where they are, in their seats, quietness of God, to place their faith in Jesus Christ as their only hope. If that describes you, you've got a, you've got a decision to make. Are you going to try to keep through your trying to live a life of goodness and trying to fight against sin, trying to be a good person? Are you, are you going to try to earn God's favor? Are you going to try, keep trying to get out from underneath his wrath? Are you going to keep trying to earn that righteousness? Or are you going to admit that you can't? And are you going to trust in Jesus Christ? If you're going to trust in Jesus Christ, the good news, he has just given you the faith to trust in him. He has issued to you the call of faith. Call to faith in Christ. And so I implore of you, respond to that call of faith by trusting in Jesus and turning from your sins. It's not about walking an aisle. It's not about marking a card. It's not about getting dunked in a baptism pool. It's about trusting in Jesus. So just in the quietness of your heart before God, tell him that you know that you're a sinner who deserves judgment. And tell him that you believe in his son, Jesus Christ, that he lived the perfect life that you could never live, and that he died in your place on a cross that you believe that he rose from the dead, proving that you, Father, had accepted his perfect death as sufficient to pay the price of your sins. Trust in him as your good and complete Savior.
But God, we thank you so much for this gospel. We thank you so much for this truth because it's so much more than that. As beautiful as that is, as, as mind-boggling as it is that sinners can be saints and those who are condemned and those who are under the wrath of God be, can, can have peace with you, it is more than that. It is the means by which you continue to grow our faith in you. It is the means by which you strengthen our faith. It is the means by which you give us divine help to fight against sin. It is the means by which you give us the hope that what we are dealing with today is not going to be forever. So Lord, help us as a faith family to preach that to ourselves, to preach that to to one another so that our faith would be strengthened and so that through our strengthening faith, Lord, that you would be glorified in us and through us. It is for your glory that we live and you deserve all of that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.